with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, and if you have an extra finger, you can stick it over there in Acts chapter 1. Not quite back to Romans yet. And um, usually about this time of year, the first Sunday or so, which this happens to be my first Sunday back, I like to give what I call a state of the church address. And this morning, uh, basically, that's what I'm kind of doing, is sharing a state of the church. But I'm doing so in terms of defining our mission. As Jesus came to the end of the 40 days after his resurrection, he had spent three years with his disciples, approximately, in ministry. They had heard his teaching. They had observed him effect miracles. They had watched his miraculous power. They had seen him heal the sick and cast out the demons, and cure the lepers, and restore sight to the blind, and feed 5,000, and turn water to wine, and walk on water, and calm the storm. And then Jesus, on occasion, had sent them out also to preach, and then brought them back and talked with them about how it went, what they experienced. Then they had seen him in that last week, as the tension mounted in Jerusalem and the time came for his arrest and eventual crucifixion, they watched him die on a cross. They saw him come out of the grave that first resurrection Sunday. And now he has walked with them and appeared to them over these 40 days and and eaten breakfast with them and taken meals with them and let them recognize that he was real flesh and blood come back from the dead. And he is about to leave. Taken up into the clouds, into the heavens, until such a time as he comes again in like manner. And as he met with them, that last moment of his time with them on earth, this is what he said. Matthew 28, verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain (coughs) which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Luke, in the book of Acts, tells us there were some more things that he had to say on that occasion, and among them, beginning in Acts 1, verse 6, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. As Jesus was leaving this planet to go back into the heavens, he gave to his followers, his disciples, what we call the Great Commission or the Great Commandment. And we begin the sentence in our English translations with a verb in the imperative mode, go therefore. But Actually, the Greek language has a participle there. And the real best translation is, as you go, make disciples. And I'm thankful that that's the way the text should read, for this reason. 
If the text were to say, go therefore and make disciples, it would be very easy for most people to say, ah, that's for preachers and missionaries. I know who that's talking about. That's talking about those people that, that uh, take up vocational ministry and they don't have a real job. You know, they go out and they preach the gospel, but that doesn't apply to the rest of us. But actually, what Jesus said to them was, as you go, make disciples. In other words, the text recognizes that it is inevitable that we go into the world. When you leave here this morning, you're going to go into the world. You're going to go home, you're going to drive through McHenry, wherever it is, to get to your house, uh, one direction or another. Tomorrow you're going to go to work, most of you. Some of you are going to buy groceries, some of you are going to clean house, some of you are going to visit with your neighbors. But whatever you do, you're going to be out there in the world doing something. And what Jesus literally said to his disciples was, as you go, be about the business of making disciples. Be about the business of introducing them to me. And when they show interest and when they respond to your testimony and to your invitation and when they want to invite me into their lives, teach them everything I've taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them the things that I have taught you. <coughs> show them how to follow me. And he says, you're not going to have to do this on your own. You're not going to have to rely on your own strength or effort to accomplish this mission because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who's been upon me, I'm going to give to you. And He is going to empower you to do this mission. He is going to enable you to do this work. So as you go, make disciples wherever you go. Teach them all the things I told you. And I will empower you with the Holy Spirit, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you, and I will always be with you, even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ defined for us, in no uncertain terms, what is our mission? What is our responsibility? And friends, I, I want to say to you this morning that there is nothing in the world more important than this mission. I realize whenever a preacher says that, that it's just very easy to kind of relegate it to, well, that's preacher speak. You know, that's just, that's what, they, that's what they're supposed to say. But friends, there is no more important decision in all of life then the decision, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Where will you spend eternity? That decision, that question is more important than who you will marry. It's more important than what job or occupation you'll take in life. It's more important than whether you'll buy a house or not. It's more important than any other decision you will ever make. It's more important than, I'm facing a crisis, do I have major surgery or not? It's more important than any other thing in all the world. It's more important than the rise and fall of kingdoms and nations. That question is the most important question in all of life. What will you do with Jesus? And the reason it's so critically important is because every human being conceived on this planet has an eternal soul, an everlasting soul, every one. And that soul will live forever, somewhere. Either in heaven, in the presence of God and all the other saints, in love and fellowship and communion and enjoyment and bliss and happiness or in conscious and everlasting torment in hell, but that soul will live forever. And where that person spends eternity is uppermost in the mind of God. 
and most important in all the decisions of life. There's nothing that makes more difference than the answer to that question. And we have been given the mission of communicating that message and introducing people to our friend. I am a friend of God. We have been given the commission of introducing people to Jesus Christ. I was on vacation for a couple of weeks over the holidays, and one of the things that I did was I took a day and went on a photography trip with a friend. We went down into Chicago, and then we drove up Lakeshore Drive and Sheridan Boulevard, and then wended our way kind of north. And as you do that, uh, one of the sites that you pass is the Baha'i Temple in the North Shore area. Beautiful architectural structure, dazzling white, intricate design. And as you move further north, I was interested to see, because we took some side uh, detours out to little jetties and whatever um, in some of those North Shore neighborhoods, and you could look back uh, onto the skyline of the North Shore, and the, the Baha'i Temple stands out. And that temple has many doors that lead into the same room of worship. And the reason it does is because one of the fundamental beliefs of Baha'i is that all the religions of the world have basically introduced us to great prophets who have pointed to the true deity. And all of those roads ultimately lead to the same place. And whether you come through Buddhism, or whether you come through Islam, or whether you come through Christianity, or whether you come through Judaism, whether you follow a Buddha, or Muhammad, or Jesus, or Abraham, or Moses, or whatever your source is, you will eventually find yourself in the same place, going in the same direction, with the same God. My friends, it is a lie. It is not true. However lovely it is, whatever noble thought it is... However glorious the temple, the message is a deception. The scripture says there is one God. His name is Jehovah. He has given us his word in this book, Genesis to Revelation. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men and his name is Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, and he died on a cross on Calvary outside of Jerusalem, and he came out of the grave on the third day and ascended into the heavens in bodily form. His name is Jesus Christ. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the only true God unless he comes through me. I am the only way. We're not bigots when we proclaim that message. We're, we are redemptive persons, ambassadors of Almighty God, bringing a message of love that there is a way home, and that way is Jesus. And there is no more important question in all of life that people answer than the question, what will I do with Jesus? And so as we come to the beginning of a new year and we consider the mission, I want to share with you some things that we need to be mindful of in terms of keeping the objective clearly before us. Rowena got a magazine out of the library and <clears throat> brought it home and had a number of articles in it, but the cover story was Holy Huckabee. The unlikely rise of a preacher politician. Now, I'm not here this morning to promote Huckabee or anybody else for president. I tell you what, frankly, from this point of view at this time, it looks pretty dismal on all counts. So I, I don't know. I, if, I, if I were to tell you anything, I don't know what I would say. But anyway, Huckabee, you may or may not realize, was a Baptist pastor for 19 years. He prepared for ministry served Southern Baptist churches in Arkansas and became the president of the Arkansas Baptist Convention. And after 19 years in ministry, he left ministry and went into politics, ultimately becoming the governor of Arkansas. He was asked by the interviewer, and he has also written a book about his story, 
But he was asked, why did you leave the ministry after 19 years? And I'm not concerned right now about his politics or what he would do as president or not do as president. What I'm interested in is why did he leave ministry as a pastor? Why did he do that? And here's his answer. He said, I had been growing restless and frustrated in the ministry. As a young minister, he envisioned himself as the captain of a warship leading God's troops into battle. Instead, he found that his flock wanted me to captain the love boat, making sure everyone was having a good time. I thought, that's very interesting. I remember one time Billy Graham was asked, would you ever consider running for president? And I believe his response to that question was, I would never consider that because I would never step out of the high and holy calling that God has given me and and stoop to that position. Now, I realize that sounds somewhat denigrating to the presidents, but uh, Billy Graham was the man who had a sense of his call from God. And I'm not saying that Huckabee doesn't, but I am fascinated by his answer as to why he left ministry. He got tired of being the captain of the love boat, making sure everyone was having a good time. He found that he was not in the business of leading the troops into battle in the glorious cause for the souls of men and women. I used to read a lot. I haven't had a lot of time to read lately. There was a time in my life when I read an average of four to five books a week. I said that one time I was asked to speak at a conference of uh, young men and women coming into ministry who were aspiring to ordination, and I was asked to speak on the subject of the, the pastor or the missionary in their library and their reading habits. And I said that, and I gave everyone apoplexy. They all nearly died on the spot, and... And I was never asked again to talk about the subject of the pastor's library. But lately I haven't uh, been able to read like that, and I don't think I read five books all of last year, uh, which was a great disappointment to me. But I did have a chance over the holidays when I was on some vacation time to do a little reading. And one of the things I read was a book that I had borrowed from Herb Burnett back in the summer. And it sat on my table by my chair for the rest of the fall, called Partners in Command by Mark Perry. And the book was the historical account of the relationship between George Marshall and Dwight Eisenhower during World War II, primarily. I was so impressed with the leadership material that I got out of the book that I I wrote myself a book report, and so I wouldn't forget the lessons that I picked up. George Marshall was the Army Chief of Staff, And he was basically running World War II from Washington as the head military uh, leader in Washington. Dwight Eisenhower, as you know, was appointed the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. And his responsibility was to lead the European theater campaign. And it it had become the decision of the Allies that the best way to win the war was to unify under central command. Of course, whenever nations get together and begin to debate that issue, the question naturally comes up, who is going to be the commander? The Brits wanted a Briton. The Americans wanted an American. I don't know how much the Canadians factored into the decision, but uh, everyone was vying for the lead role. But they did agree together, Churchill and Roosevelt, did agree together that ultimately the the cause would best be served if they were unified under central command. And in the end, Dwight Eisenhower was appointed in agreement with Winston Churchill and the British as the supreme allied commander of all of the allied forces in the European theater. And they had a mission. That mission was to defeat Germany as quickly as possible to bring the war to an end and to bring peace back to the world. That was the mission. And it is arguably true that in that point of time, in the 20th century, it was the darkest hour of the world. The Bible tells us that there's going to come another time that's going to be even darker. And ultimately and eventually it's going to lead us into the events of the book of Revelation. 
But barring that end-of-time story, World War II may have been the darkest hour. And it was certainly one of the greatest challenges. There was never a time when the future of free men and women and free economy and, and the, the, the system upon which the United States and other European nations had been built, but particularly the way of life in the United States, there was never a time when that kind of freedom and liberty was threatened the way it was in World War II. With all of that at stake, do you know what some of the greatest battles Dwight Eisenhower faced were? Trying to keep the British and American commanders from fighting with each other. It was utterly amazing that with so much at stake, so many people and high command spent time wanting to be the first with the most, with the greatest. They wanted to rush in and be the champions. They wanted to get the most resources. They wanted to be allocated the prime spot. They wanted to be recognized as the lead commander. They wanted to be the ones who liberated Berlin. They wanted to be the ones that invaded Normandy. They wanted to be the, the king. They wanted to be the leaders. They wanted to get the stars and the crown. Their nation wanted to be first when a much bigger cause was at stake. I wish I could tell you that that was just the trouble between the Americans and the British in World War II in Europe, but uh, Perry comments later on in his book that it was actually a problem in the Pacific Theater between our own commanders. Nimitz and MacArthur spent more time fighting between the Army and the Navy than they did fighting the Japanese. And the consequence was that they said the war probably lasted six to nine months longer than it needed to because those two commanders of the Navy and the Army in the Pacific couldn't get it together. And they're on the same team. But egos were in the way. And one of the notes that I made as I read the book was, being a team leader of highly gifted individuals, and they were all gifted, you don't get to be a third-star general by being an idiot. You have to have some talent. You can't get there by being a fool. They were all gifted leaders. Being a team leader of highly gifted individuals who have competing goals and personality quirks can monopolize all of a team leader's time, engaging him in the role of political referee and distracting him from the essential mission. It is imperative that the team leader not let this happen. As I read the book and kind of read it with an open mind before God, God can speak through a lot of things, even a book about generals in the war. God spoke to me about the issues of leadership. And one of the things that stood out to me in that book was the importance of keeping mission focus the importance of keeping the goal in front of you, the importance of knowing what it is you're really about when 15 other people have a variety of ideas of how they think it ought to be done and they're squabbling with each other instead of moving together in the direction of winning the goal. And as I thought about all that was at stake in World War II, this thought came to me. No matter how significant, no matter how powerful, no matter how problematic it was for the, the allies to win the war in Europe, there was nothing more important, there is nothing more important than the church winning the battle for the souls of men and women. Sometimes I've been asked over the years, People read books about the Illuminati, and they read books about secret societies and whatever. And I've been asked over the years, do you believe in a conspiracy theory of government? Some people think it's limited to the United States, and it just is a conspiracy. Uh, there are no real Republicans or Democrats or multiple parties. There's really only one group of secret leaders behind the scenes promoting their man to president or maybe woman this year. And they're, you know, they're the ones that are driving the whole thing and, 
and we really don't. We're just pawns. And some people expand that to say, oh, it includes European nations as well, and they're a secret society that's really governing the whole world. Do you believe in a conspiracy theory? Yes, I do. But I don't believe it's of flesh and blood. The conspiracy theory, friends, that the Bible tells us is that there is one mastermind who has his minions, his forces, that are working behind the scenes to control the affairs of men with one goal in mind. And while the Republicans may not know it, and the Democrats may not know it, and the United States may not realize it, or Germany or Italy or France or Britain may not realize it, they are being guided and directed and, and influenced by supernatural, unseen, hidden powers of darkness that are moving us in a direction, in a specific way, to keep the souls of men and women from coming to know Jesus Christ. That is the battle. And it's a greater battle than we've ever faced in the arena of human warfare. Paul tells us our struggle is not with flesh and blood. That's not the enemy. Our struggle is with principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly realms. Ephesians chapter 6. And that's where the battle is fought. And we tend not to recognize that. We tend not to recognize it because we're so busy just trying to get through life. We're so busy trying to meet our goals, our personal goals, our own agenda, our own objectives. We're trying to, to, to live the American dream. We're so caught up in our stuff that we have forgotten we're in a battle and that the souls of men and women hang in the balance. I mentioned, I wrote down several things that I wanted to mention to you this morning in terms of uh, mission conference time. The flags cover the clock. That is, that is a real blessing to me. But it's a frustration to some others, so I'll, I get my watch out just so I can see how long I'm going past the time. <clears throat> that way I'll feel a little guilty about it in spite of it. I wrote down several things that I think we need to take note of this morning as we consider what gets in the way of our mission. What hinders our mission focus? You know, Paul wrote to Timothy, and this is what he said to him. He said, Timothy, no soldier entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life in order that he may be able to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. There's military terminology there. We're being reminded again we're in a war. Timothy is in a war. But the operative word in Paul's admonition to Timothy is entangles. No soldier entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life in order that he might please the one who enlisted him. We're going to have everyday life. We're going to have to live everyday life. If you're like me, and I think you are, you have to sleep, you have to eat, you have to shower, hopefully, you have to dress, you have to work, you have to put gas in your car, you have to do all of those mundane things that consist of our everyday lives. You have to do those things. But Paul says no one entangles himself in those affairs. And friends, the more I look at our situation in our culture, in our time, when I speak of our culture, I'm talking about the way we Americans live our lives. The more I look at our situation, the more I'm convinced that one of the biggest battles we fight as Christians is the battle for time and resources because we're so enmeshed and entangled in the affairs of life. In order for the mission to be accomplished, 
We must bring our resources to the feet of Jesus and surrender them. You know what that means? I have to give Jesus my time. I have to give him my ability, my life, my, my talents, and the gifts that he's given me. I have to yield to him. I have to yield to him my resources. I have to let him be my Lord. He has enlisted me as a soldier in this great campaign to liberate men and women from the bondage of darkness, to bring them the light. And in order to do that, I've got to give myself to Jesus Christ. But for most of us, we are so busy trying to pay the bills, trying to get to work, trying to manage the family, trying to take care of our lives, trying to pursue that American dream, trying to have more stuff, that we are so enmeshed, we don't have time, and we don't have money, and we don't have energy to spare, because we're caught up in the affairs of life. And friends, I'm talking about all of us. I, I put myself in that camp. And I don't know about you, but when I'm done with my day, I come home tired. And if you think that preachers sit around in their office and, and, and read the Bible and holy books and pray, you know, and spend half their time like this, come watch me someday. I mean, it just it, that's not what happens. Much to my chagrin, honestly. But there are many demands in many directions. And like you, I'm tired when I'm done. I'm tired, frankly, long before I'm done. When I get home, it's more like exhaustion. And my energy is limited. And you know, we can't change a lot about our resources. You can't go from being a thousandaire to a millionaire that fast. Oh, I think I need more money. I'll just go make another million. I don't know anybody here that can do that. You're relatively set in whatever your income is. You're, you're absolutely set in how many hours you have. Did you know no matter how much you love Jesus Christ, no matter how much you're determined to follow Him, did you know that you cannot serve Him 30 hours a day? You can't do that. Because you don't have it. You only have 24. And that's a limited resource. And God has placed that limitation on the resource. And you have to sleep a certain amount of it. One of the things I was amazed as I'm reading this thing about Eisenhower, and I think, man, he's got this huge responsibility, and he's in the thick of battle. You know one of the things George Marshall kept telling him time and time again, and even assigned one of his colonels to say, this is your mission. His mission is to win the war in Europe. Here's your mission. Make sure he rests. Make sure he takes vacations. Make sure he eats properly. Make sure he exercises. Because I want him healthy, sharp, and ready to work when he's at work. Otherwise, he will not be able to do it. It was like, well, there's a novel thought. He's a human being that needs to conserve in order to give. How many of us follow those principles? Staying healthy, getting rest, getting adequate, the right kind of food, getting exercise, taking vacations, taking mental breaks. How many of us follow that prescription? World War II does not hang in the balance of our decisions, but the destiny of the people around us may. And we have a responsibility. And so my encouragement to you this morning as you consider that is, if you are so entangled in life, and I'm not being critical, I'm being empathic, we're, we're all there. But if you're spending so much time working and you have no energy and, and no reserve to commit to, to the mission, and you are so strung out in death that you don't have a dime to spare, and you are so exhausted that you have no energy, you need to begin asking God to show you how you can change. You need to ask God for wisdom and insight to make differences in your life. Something's got to happen because, friends, we've been given a task as a church. 
And if we don't have the energy for it, and we don't have the resources for it, and we don't have the time for it, it is not going to get done. And it's the most important task in all the world. As you go, make disciples. There's no bigger mission. And sometimes I think we stay right where we are because we just don't have the energy to be different. There's another thing that that came to me as I was meditating on what keeps us from fulfilling the mission. And that is we hang on to personal comfort and our own small little social groups. I hope you have close friends. But you know, if you take all the time you have and spend it with your close friends and just enjoying each other, you're not going to have any time to reach out and minister to somebody else. You're not going to have time to include somebody else in, in, in your life to, to introduce them to Jesus Christ. If, if you enjoy your little group at church so much that you don't want to let anybody else into your circle, people who come looking for answers are going to be turned aside because they can't break into the church. I know as I talk with Herb, one of his concerns as director of small group ministries is lack of growth in our small groups, lack of multiplication in small groups, lack of expansion throughout the community. And I have a confession to make. I love my small group. I like being with my small group. In fact, when I'm there, I don't even feel like I'm Reverend Martin. I, I can just go be me. I even think I'm about 20 years younger because all of them are. You know, and, and it just, it, it's kind of energizing in my mind. And I think they like me. I may be living an illusion, but I, we enjoy each other. I love that group. I love its closeness. I love its intimacy. I love the support that we have for one another. I love how we pray for each other. I love how we share together. I like having a meal with them. I enjoy that. Can I tell you that it it kind of crowds me to think if I bring somebody else in, they're going to mess up this little dynamic. They're going to interfere with our closeness. They're not like us. They're going to change our group. Did you know that that's true? Do you have a group like that? I hope you do. I hope you have a small group like that. And and did you know if you bring a stranger into that group, it's going to change you? Did you know that? You're not going to be the same. But let me tell you something else, friends. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about what gives me strokes. It's not about my little comfort. I'm going to have all eternity to be intimate with a bunch of people. But if I don't make some difference now, some of them are not going to be there. And if I can't find room in my heart and in my group for a stranger, a visitor, I'm in trouble. Because it's not about me. It's about Jesus and where they're going to spend eternity. That's the message. That's the mission. And whether it's a small group or whether it's a little group here at church or or whether it's it's your own little Bible study or whether it's a little ministry club you've got, if you have developed such a close-knit kind of deal that you can't let other people willingly come into it, you need to rethink the mission. Because you're focused on yourself. And, I, and I'm just sharing my heart with you because I know how it feels. I like intimacy among close friends. I like it. But the mission is to bring more people into that circle. And if it means we get so big we can't meet in one person's living room, well, then that means we're going to have to meet in two living rooms. And that's okay. Jesus will make that okay. But I've got to think bigger than my own self in the equation. I have to do that.
A third thing that I wanted to mention to you. Actually, I have two more, but I don't have time for two more, so I'll mention one more. Because I put my watch down here and it tells me I should shut up in about 60 seconds. A third thing is having an independent spirit. And my fourth thing is disrupting the unity of the body. Paul says to the Ephesian church, be diligent to preserve the unity of the body in the bond of peace. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the body in the bond of peace. There is nothing more precious to Jesus Christ in his church than unity. There is nothing that will more quickly give ground to Satan than an independent and grumbling spirit. People who want their own agenda. You know, you read the stories of those generals in the European theater, and they had an agenda. Some of them were not particularly egotistical. They just happened to think their plan was the better plan. And by golly, they wanted it their way because they were convinced it was the best. But they weren't the supreme allied commander. But they wanted to fight. All the way to the end, they wanted to fight for their way. When I was younger, a child, and I was reading the book of Judges, I remember the first time I read, and it connected with me, the statement from the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you know, that really appealed to me. I thought, wow, here's a great group of people. Everyone's doing what's right. I mean, what could be better than everybody doing what was right? I didn't understand that the in their own eyes was a crucial part of that statement. And then later I came to realize that that was not a commendation. That was the explanation of why Israel had failed to conquer the Canaan land, why they couldn't get their act together, why they were being overrun by all their enemies, why they stayed disorganized, why they were never on track, why they were a mess. Because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Instead of coming together under the leadership that God had given and moving forward in a unified direction, they all had a plan. Now, we spent some time in a leadership meeting yesterday, and one of the things we encouraged was for every one of the people there and every one of you, as this begins to unfold, to pray and ask God what kind of vision He's giving you for this church and the ministry to reach out into this community. And we want you to do that. But ultimately, friends, you can't all do everything you want to do all at the same time. Ultimately, those visions and ideas and concepts are going to have to come under the elected and anointed leadership. Ultimately, they're going to have to be prioritized and strategized and triaged. Ultimately, there's going to have to be decisions made for the allocation of limited resources. And we're going to have to do this now and that later and that off next year and not do this thing at all because there's mission critical activities and we're going to have to prayerfully sift through that. What do you do when something doesn't go along with your plan? Are you part of the team? Are you sitting off on the side saying, well, that's not what I think is important. That's not what I think we ought to be doing. So I'm just not going to get involved. You can't do that. You cannot do that. If you do, we're not going to succeed as a congregation. We're going to fail in the mission that God has given us. And can I, I know I'm going to get shot for this. Maybe not literally, but I hope not literally. But I'm going to say it anyway, and you'll have you go sort it out. Do you know how every man did what was right in his own eyes sounds in the contemporary church? I don't feel God's leading me to do this. I feel God's leading me to do that. 
Did God lead you to be part of this church? Did he lead you to be part of this family? Then I've got news for you. He led you to be under the authority of the leadership that has been elected. End of story. I'm in the Christian and Missionary Alliance as a pastor, and we are as a church. And you know what? I don't agree with everything the CNMA does. A few years ago, I found out that in our Great Commission Fund, when you give your Great Commission Fund dollars, I found out that we spent about a quarter of a million dollars on a consulting firm to help us brand the alliance. Now, I'm talking, not talking about a hot iron in the fire that you, you know, put on a cow. I'm talking about developing a market presence with a brand name that's recognized. And, and we spent money on consultants to help us brand the alliance, about a quarter of a million dollars. Can I just tell you something between you and me? I think that's a dumb waste of money. I don't agree with that at all. But I write my check to the Great Commission Fund, and contribute my, my funds consistently because I believe in the mission. And when I look at the budget of the Christian Missionary Alliance, that quarter of a million dollars is less than 1%. But 70% plus of my dollar still puts missionaries on the field in other countries to share Jesus Christ with people that don't know him. And you know what? Who am I? to bicker and back off and withhold my funds because I don't agree with a measly 1% or 2%. I have no business doing that. That's not my choice. I'm a part of the team. I'm on the licensing and ordaining board in our district. I don't agree with everything we do. I don't agree with some of our requirements and regulations. Sometimes I chafe. I, I have strong, strong feelings about some of this. There's some things that are going to come up at council in the, in the years to come to change, and I'm going to be right in there saying, yeah, let's change this, because that's the venue and appropriate place to do that. I'm going to be right in there saying, yeah, let's change this. But you know what? Right now, I have what I have, and I'm going to do it, even though I don't agree with it. You know why? Because I'm a man under authority. In the Christian Missionary Alliance, we have that conviction of constituted authority. And if there ever comes a day when I can't give my money to the Great Commission Fund because I'm so deeply convicted that they're out of the will of God, or the day ever comes that I can't support the district ministry because I'm so deeply convicted that it's out of the will of God, I will tell you honestly, I will resign and go join another team. But I will not be a murmurer, grumbler, griper, and complainer in the midst of the effort. People who bring disunity create an open door for Satan to demoralize the troops and ultimately lead to disintegration of focus. There is nothing that grieves the Holy Spirit more than when we are failing to love each other and function together in unity. And that means that there are proper venues and appropriate avenues to share your convictions. I'm not trying to stifle anyone here this morning. But you know what? If God gives you a vision for an ice cream ministry, and he gives somebody else a vision for an ice cream ministry, and you guys join together, and then the leadership team says, we're going to start out by serving chocolate. And you say, my vision was to serve vanilla. And I think I'll just not play because it's not chocolate. It's, it's not vanilla. I don't want to do chocolate. Shame on us. Am I pointing my finger to any particular person here this morning? No. I hope you know me well enough to know that. I haven't been frequently accused of preaching to individuals from the pulpit, but I'll just remind you again if you ever wonder that if I have something to say to you, I'll say it to you. Personally, if I know, I'm not talking to an individual right now. I'm talking to a group attitude that we in this church and other churches frequently fall victim to. We need to be on the same team. And if God gives you a vision for an ice cream ministry and they're serving chocolate, go serve chocolate. 
Get involved. Hand out more chocolate than anybody else. And when you demonstrate your willingness to serve and your commitment to the cause, maybe somebody will say, do you have something in mind? Yeah, I'd like to serve vanilla. Oh, okay, that's a good idea. Be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Get involved in the team. Move forward in the same direction. We have a mission, friends. It's the most important assignment on the globe to win men and women, young people, children, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to introduce them to the Savior, to make disciples of them. And if, if you are so drained and exhausted and entangled with the affairs of everyday life that you don't have time to do that, you've got to ask God to get you freed up. And if you're so cozy and comfortable and snug and secure that you don't want anybody messing with your fellowship, you've got to get out of your comfort zone because it's not about you. And if you're so pig-headed that your way is the only way it can be done, you need to repent and ask God to give you a humble spirit and come under authority and play on the team and ask God to give you the grace and the commitment to be a team player and then in due season to give voice to your passions and your concerns and your vision. The time will come, but it's not being a grumbler. We have a mission that we have to accomplish. And I tell you what, I haven't been at this 19 years. I've been at this 35 years. And I still believe I'm called to be the captain of a mighty troop ship going into battle. I thank God that neither I nor you think I'm here to shepherd the love boat. That's not my goal, and I don't think that's yours. I still think I'm the captain called by God, a pastor, to lead a church into battle. And that's our mission. And we need to be about the work in 2008. Father, open our eyes, give us grace and commitment that we might disentangle ourselves from the affairs of life. Lord, that we might see the vision to bring others into our fellowship. And Lord, that we might be those who work together in unity and harmony to accomplish the goal. Because we have been given the greatest mission in all the world. And we thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.